Good evening, Sangha family. I just want to say that um, you all have taken your seat, but I actually have the best seat in the house because I get to see your faces. You know, I've, I've seen some of you in group and others I've just seen walking so beautifully and, and uh, practicing. So this is really, it's, it's quite beautiful from here. This is my view of you. And again, before I start, I just want to really say what an honor it is to be here this time. It just feels right at this time of the year. I had never, I've never done a, a New Year's retreat. I know many of you, you know, do it repeatedly, but this has been, for me, I'm getting this feeling of renewal. It feels really, really uh, special, very important. So this evening, my talk is about compassion and the courage to turn towards suffering, turn away from suffering towards freedom. And this evening, we're going to explore just several of those 84,000 Dharma doors that I think Tara spoke to, and I spoke to it a little bit in one of my groups, and somebody asked me if I knew them all. I said, yeah, I recited them. <laughs> and this one is 1,642. No, I don't know. <laughs> but it's really a door that opens towards the journey towards freedom. The freedom that can be found when we allow our whole being to take a deep breath and acknowledge what exists as an undeniable fact that we all sit in the seat of dukkha. Our lives, our experiences, these present moment experiences really are what we have to hold on to. But I don't think there's anyone in this room hasn't at some point in time, and maybe right now, I don't know, has been sitting, feeling at some point in their lives with suffering. Dukkha is kind of the poly word that translates into suffering. And our conscious minds and hearts are primed to have the experience of both sorrow and joy. Taoists say that there's this 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And oftentimes, I know in my experience, I've had those experiences all at once, simultaneously. And although I want to not have this and, of course, have that, they exist. In our, in our lives and in our hearts. And it's really interesting to be able to hold that duality. It's delicate. And it's complex. The vicissitudes of life, these things that are ever-changing, are also present in our everyday experiences. How many of you have had the, I would say, opportunity, maybe not opportunity, but to feel pleasure, and the opposite of pain. Gain, loss. Praise, blame. Fame, or shame. These are the eight worldly winds that are described by the Buddha, but these are the vicissitudes. This is what we all are holding on to. 
We all have felt that at some point in time. What is our relationship to either one of them is what's really important. But tonight I want to talk about cultivating compassion, a compassionate heart, and where compassion and freedom kind of make that sweet, sweet interconnection. And what it requires, I believe, is for us to renew ourselves. I was just talking about New Year's, right? This, this time of renewal. And this time of really digging deep into the resources of what we do have, the heart space. Christine Feldman, who is a teacher, insight teacher, she teaches at uh, IMS, but also she's English. She teaches at Gaia House in England. She writes that compassion asks us to take a seat in the center of the landscape of pain and despair. The inquiry here is whether the path, the path of cultivating of devotional practice, can hold all of your integrity, your goodwill, your desire to transcend our lives beyond hardened, coarse, closed hearts that oftentimes get encrusted on a daily basis. So sitting in the center of pain and distress and meeting it with love and kindness, this is not new for any of us. These are ancient teachings. We've heard it from the indigenous wisdom holders. We've heard it preached and spoken to in synagogues and churches and temples. And yet, even though they're well-intended and well-intentioned, these teachings around being able to sit in that place of, of pain and distress and despair, turning our hearts into much more of a compassionate place. They don't seem to, it seems to me as though some of the teachings fall short. Some of these wisdom holders are not necessarily, they don't necessarily exemplify what that is. So while we hesitate to embody and and manifest these well-intended virtues, we know that there are also abuses that happen. We see it all the time. We see abuses racially, socially, environmentally. We see it on our planet. We see it on our children, LGBT communities. There is just incredible suffering happening. And in fact, you're probably reflecting on why there isn't more compassion in the world. I know that's my thought. Why isn't there? What has happened to our our society. We were talking a little bit about at, at dinner tonight about what's happening with the speed and everything that's going on in our lives. I contend that taking our seat in the center of suffering, either mine or yours, that we're stretched beyond the understanding of the fragility of this one true fact. It's what the Buddha has said was the only teaching he gave us. The first noble truth, there is suffering. And there's an end to suffering. And although we may want to turn away from it, there is dukkha in our lives. Um, I think I told you in my introduction that I live in Oakland. But I want to be a little bit more specific. I live in East Oakland, which is a whole different 
area of some parts of Oakland. And recently, the New York Times, it was just probably a week or two ago, they did this video um, expose on the homeless situation in Oakland. And much like probably communities that you are in where you see a lot of change happening in the inner cities, where gentrification is coming, in Oakland, it is pressed down and almost insane. The amount of what the cost of rents are, who, who are, who's moving in, especially from San Francisco, because it's more affordable, or at least it was. But what it's created is a huge homeless uh, population. And I did some research, because I like facts. I'm like a factoid. You know, I like to get all the statistics and things like that. In another life of mine, I was an accountant. <laughs> so I'm like, I got all these facts. And, you know, much to my wife's dismay, you know, because she comes home, I'm like, guess what? So sometimes I have to open my valve and pour it out. So I'm pouring it out to you. The homeless population in Oakland has grown to an astounding 47% in the last two years. And of that growth, 40%, 70% are African-American men. It's just un, it's un, unbelievable. Right? The streets are filled with homeless encampments. You can see it underneath the freeways, over the freeways. In some areas, they had actually taken over a lane of the street. And the best that the city and state could do, really, is put in porta-potties or, you know, sheds, whatever, to try to accommodate the homeless population. And as I scrolled through the New York Times video um, expose of it, my heart sank. I just had this incredible feeling of sorrow. This is the city I live in. I was embarrassed for, for the city that I live in. I was dismayed because these are viable human beings who have not been given the right, the rights that we all deserve. Food, housing, equal opportunities, all been denied, ignored, or just forgotten about. So I had to examine my own heart, my reaction. Actually, it was, it was like shock. I see it all the time, but to see it broadcast for people to see in the New York Times, it was shocking to me. And so I asked myself, I'm in overwhelm at this point. What can I do? What is it that I can do to help? How can I make a difference? And then it reminded me of a quote from Martin Luther King. He said, true compassion is more than flinging a coin at a beggar. It comes to see that the edifice that produces beggars need to be reconstructing. And he said that in 1967 in his speech beyond Vietnam. We, looking, at this, looking at it from these, these view is not enough. It's, it's really a radical shift and change that needs to happen. But it's still wondering what happens to our hearts. What happens to the true suffering? We see it's deeper than what our eyes can even witness. And sometimes when we 
see the world we're all living in. Especially as it's coming to us through social media. This, and we are, I am, I'm going to be, raise my hand, my name is no leeway and I'm addicted <laughs> to social media. I look, I scroll, I do this, I don't pay attention, I'm not present sometimes, but it's all coming at me so quickly, and I'm sure with you too. And it becomes almost too painful sometimes when we see it. It's, un- it's too unbearable. It's all the twos, right? It's too unbelievable. It's too unfathomable. And yet this is the world we live in, so how do we cultivate this compassion in our hearts to care for others. And not that others necessarily are less or more downtrodden than we are. How do we just care for the world? So many things going on, climate crisis, children at the borders. I mean, we could name them all. And I'm sure you all have your own list of things that affect you when you see it all happening. Um, One of my dear teachers, Tanessera, writes in her book, Time to Stand Up. She says, at this most calamitous of times, the Buddha's message is more important than ever. As we meet the terrifying challenge of climate change and the likely energy and social revolutions it will um, initiate, we will be thrust into devastating and exhilarating realities. Everything is changing now very fast. And so taking the Buddha's example to heart, we know compassion as the overarching intention for navigating the inner and outer landscapes of our world. Compassion. Karuna, as the Buddha has named it in Pali. It's Karuna, one of the divine abodes one of the immeasurables. And, you know, her words sound somewhat bleak. Probably the beginning of my talk sounds pretty bleak. Didn't want to be a Debbie Downer. But I really want to speak to what's present in our lives. And more importantly, what's present in our hearts. This is clearly not a time to avoid it. And I believe that compassion, once we begin the very delicate and sometimes arduous task of cultivating compassion in our hearts. It takes all the courage we have. And one of the ways that I'm looking right now is because, I think I've said this a couple of times, maybe not, but I'm a new grandmother. I have a grandson who is two years and nine months old. And he is the love of my life. I didn't think that love could be this way. But I think to myself, at some point, will he say, Nana, what did you leave me? What am I inheriting? What did you do to help make the world a better place? To help make the planet a better place? Let's just broaden this. our planet. So let's take just a second to explore this, I use this word in one of our groups, our tender, fierce hearts. 
because I think that we, we hold both of that. We hold the fierceness of who we are in the world, who we are with our families, our communities, and we also hold a tenderness. So our, I think our hearts, this fierce, tender heart, is asking us to take that seat in the center. We may not want to. It may not feel like it's my seat. It's not real comfy. In fact, it's a little hard. And I'd much rather sit in a, um, a lazy girl rather than really sit in the seat of suffering. And when we do, I think our hearts are, are requiring us to do this today. We are going to be met with discomfort. And we're going to be met with our edge. And some of us who are already on the forefront of really being change makers in the world, and I applaud every one of us, it's going to be weary. It's a weary task that's ahead. Now I have to sit in this. And it, we might be needing ourselves in this seat with a quivering heart. And that's what is happening to me. When I saw the New York Times and so forth, I felt this quivering in my heart. What can I do? This is the heart of compassion. Yesterday, last night, Tara spoke a lot about resistance. There's a way that we see suffering, yours, mine, and we turn away from it. We're in denial. We're adverse to it. It's one of those ways in which we can get on with our lives. I saw it, but I didn't really see it. You know, I got something to do. I got to get on the line. I got to... I've got to do this email. I've got work to do. And it doesn't necessarily mean that I have a time to sit in the seat, to take that seat and really look at suffering. The essential elements of our heart needs to move into being more soft. What we see right now is just, for me anyway, I know that my heart gets hardened. And so we need to soften our hearts a little bit. Allows us to be in the landscape of all of this. Um, And in that softening, that is the first step to cultivation. Cultivating a compassionate heart and also cultivating compassionate action. All the heart practices... Loving kindness, metta, which Khanda did such a beautiful instruction on. Appreciative joy, mudita. Equanimity, upekka. Compassion, karuna. All of these heart practices, these immeasurables, these divine abodes, are not passive. They say there's two wings to, to, the, to the dharma. There's the heart wing and the wisdom wing. I think that there's one wing because it, both of these take 
for us to really land in it, it takes courage. And they are revolutionary and radical acts. It takes wise action, wise attention, and wise intention to move things forward. There's an interconnectedness that we have with, the, with these heart practices that we just can't, we can let them go over here, but at some point, your heart's going to open. At least may that be so. The Buddha said that the heart practices are the underlying places in which we begin to step into the path of awakening. James Baldwin writes in his novel, Sonny's Blues, for while the tale of how we suffer and how we are delighted and how we may triumph is never new, it always must be heard. There isn't any other tale to tell. It's the only light we've got in all this darkness. I've heard over the years through doing retreats and doing groups that people are really leaning into now, how do I, and even here in in the groups, I want to turn, I want to touch my heart differently. I want to be different in the world. I want to be different for myself. And it's true for me, too. Lately, compassion has been one of my practices. And although I have to tell you, it's slow. You know, I use this example of, because um, I'm on the East Coast, so I'll say it, um, molasses in February in Vermont. I mean, it's just a slow drip. Slow, slow, slow. It's a slow slog towards awakening. And yet that's, that's what I really want because what I was never taught, I was never taught that there was a way in to liberation through my heart, to healing the woundedness of my heart. I never was taught that. In fact, I'm going to tell you just a personal story. I grew up in Los Angeles in South L.A., and my father, name him Larry, was a brilliant man. Intellectually, he was brilliant. He, um, he had a curious mind. He was very astute, very learned. He, he could fix anything. I mean, I can't tell you how many magazines of, in this day, they probably don't make any more popular mechanics. He would get that magazine and just tinker. You know, he was told he was a tinkerer. He would build the stereo cabinet. He could do so much. And yet he was still a black man living in America. So out in the world, there were conditions that just weren't conducive for his brilliance and for the man that he was. He was born in 1927, and he was raised by a single mother, my grandmother, Nana, during the Depression. And, you know, he he loved jazz. He was a hipster. He got me, and he really was. (laughs) He was one of those hip guys. Uh, Married twice, three children, but he had to face his demons. Talked about demons last night. He was tormented. 
And part of that was the conditions, the outside conditions that he had to face. And so here he was raising a family in the 50s with a conditionality and a positionality that did not suit him. So as a child, I had to witness his wrath on so many levels. I was at the effect of his frustration of not being able to be seen as a full human being in the world, a substantial man, a provider, a father, a husband. And his only outlet was to come home and just rage. It took me a long time to understand where that came from. Because as a young child, you just don't know. You know you're, you, you're young. You're like, why is he doing this? But over time, I could see that this suffering of being black in America mounts exponentially. It just layered so much onto him that he had no other recourse. Because he, he couldn't exercise that same expression outside. He couldn't do that to his boss when he didn't get promoted whatever it was. And I saw his woundedness, and ultimately, I saw my own. But I also witnessed my mother at, also at the effect of his conditioning, being a longtime sufferer. And I've often wondered, having seen her suffer, how did that impact my life? How did, what was the imprint on my life? Where have I been a long time sufferer? Where, where have I turned away and didn't hear my voice and was silenced and set in places where I should not have sat? Now, both my parents are now ancestors, and they're free from their individual and collective torment and individualized and internalized conditioning but there still is intergenerational and ancestral effects of it. So eventually, having finally kind of got a glimpse of this, I started to immerse myself about 20 years ago into this practice. I stepped foot on the campus of Spirit Rock, had been meditating for quite some time, but not necessarily in this tradition, in Theravadan, Vipassana tradition. And from the very first retreat, I got in touch with the deep suffering in myself. I, was, I had been going along with life trying to fix everything, right? fix everybody else, until I had to really take that seat that we were talking about. And over the years, having seen what I saw as a young child, those lessons became my guidepost, my lighthouse beacon. It shed light on where I needed to be. And I've drawn from those lessons so that I'm not continuously knotted up. Because you know, that, that can also happen. We can get stuck in this place of suffering and not try to figure out a way in which we can actually loosen the grip. Compassion. It's, it's more than just a 
feeling. It's really how we want to walk in the world. It's, as I said, the Buddha has laid this out as actually essential to the path to awakening. Anyone, all of these Brahma-viharas, as he calls them. And then there are other ways to actually access this level of compassion that we can now begin to put into action for the world and for ourselves. This, this April, I was able to spend a month in South Africa uh, doing a month-long retreat at a retreat center called Dharmagiri run by Tanesra and Kitasaro. They are uh, two teachers who've run the center for 25 years, and they were both monastics um, and had quite a devotional practice. And so I got real, I was really impressed with it because I think that as this Western Buddhism has come over to the United States and other areas, what it's been void of is devotion, devotional practices. Whether it's chanting or bowing, you know, that was, there were pieces that did not come over because of many reasons. And so I recognized that there was something missing even in my practice. And I could feel it in the Sangha as well. And so I got kind of curious, like, what is this? And so I knew Tanisara. Uh, she was one of the core teachers of a program that I was in, um, community, community Dharma Leaders, back in 2010, 11, something like that. So I, I knew who she was, but I also recognized her devotion. And so that got me wanting to, to know more and to have it really embody it for myself. So as we were in this retreat for a month, every morning we did devotional practices, chanting, but one of the most important things that they introduced to us was honoring and respecting and not even respect, it's actually leaning into Kuan Yin. And we see her here. And Kuan Yin, Chinese goddess, Bodhisattva, Bodhisattva. The name Kuan Yin means the one who hears the cries of the world. And what's interesting is that Kuan Yin embodies in many cultures both a male and female energy, so it's quite androgynous. You'll see some statues that actually look like Kuan Yin could be either or, or both and. And for many aspects of Kuan Yin, it is a deep, deep practice of, practice of opening our hearts. It's practiced and worshipped in China, Japan, the Mahayana, the Taoist traditions, Tantric Buddhism, and they, Kuan Yin, often is shown with a thousand arms and multiple eyes and heads. I don't know if you've seen any of those statues. Beautiful, right? Just absolutely beautiful. And oftentimes you'll see that in all of those hands, there may be eyes in the hands because it's said that this image is depicting her ability or their ability to see in every direction at once. 
seeing the suffering of the world, sensing what's happening with humanity. So as we recited the Lotus Sutra, chanting Kuan Yin's name, practicing these devotional ways, it was just opening a new door for me, and a a new door for everyone that was in Sangha. And I've seen it over and over again, just holding the name of Kuan Yin, repeating it, listening to the sound. It opens us up. And not just to the suffering of the world, but it really opens us up to our own suffering. At Dharmagiri, there's this beautiful mountain that's behind the retreat center. And just like uh, um, Tara had mentioned in the very first, in our first evening, what was your aspiration to coming to this retreat? I had set an intention. I knew the mountain was there. I had talked to many people who had been on retreat before, and they said, oh, you should walk this mountain. It's magical. It has mag- it's just magic. So I decided that my intention was to ask the mountain, this magical mountain, to take care of me. Um, because I had been taking care of so many in my life. I had asked the mountain to hold me. So I think it was the second day I hiked up the mountain. Big mountain. I didn't hike all the way up, but I hiked. The trail is only shared by other yogis and baboons. And so I let the baboons have their trail if they needed it, and then I went on another trail. But I kept walking up the mountain, and the very first day I got there, I I actually named her Mama Mountain because that's what I needed. So I asked her, I said, will you care for me? Will you hold me? And I heard this response that said, not until you do it for yourself. I was dismayed. I said, okay. Confused, disappointed. Came back to my practice. Next day, walked up, hiked up the mountain, Ask the same question. Will you care for me? Will you hold me? Not until you do it for yourself. Walk back down, back into practice. So I was there for 30 days, and I did this for probably the first 20 days. And I kept thinking, when? When will I get this answer? When can I surrender? to being held. And then one day during our practice, we were led in a Tibetan bardo meditation. It's actually called a death meditation, but it was one where we laid out and we just did some beautiful, beautiful work. And my experience in that moment was a cracking open of my heart. And in that, it wasn't like I broke apart. I actually broke open. And I felt my heart widen to the capacity that I had never felt before. 
But what I also experience was leaving my self-identified self. I felt an emptiness. And it wasn't like there was a void. It was also like, it was a, a way that I could breathe. That type of emptiness. And I realized that I didn't have any fear. And I wasn't longing for anything. And I didn't feel a separateness. And it was one of the most profound things I have ever experienced, which was actually, at some level, letting go of that ego self. So after this sacred, powerful meditation, walked back up to Mama Mountain. I asked the question again. This time I didn't have any fear. And I didn't have any longing. And I didn't feel any separateness. And the response that I got, what I felt, what I sensed, was now I will care for you. Now I will hold you. Because I answered my own calling. At that point, I turned the mirror from needing to have the acceptance out here to how do I actually accept self-compassion for myself? Turning the mirror is what the invitation right now is for all of us. Turning the mirror so that we can see the suffering that's lying inside of us and begin the beautiful work, the precious work of healing our wounds. It's just walking inward, isn't it? Not walking without. There's this beautiful poem I'd like to read to you. It's by Lisa Shackke. And it's called What Matters. What matters is that you do not pretend you do not hear the water's ancient melody over stones in the river. And you do not turn away from the questions ringing inside you like bells in the monk's hands. What matters is that you do not ignore the alpine meadows and their wildflowers singing the cobalt sky. And you say yes to the laughter and yes to the tears. And you open yourself to the mountain so the sun can find you and the grass kiss your feet. What matters is that you say yes to the dance and you say yes to the songs. Yes to the night and all her stars. Yes to the colors painted by light. Yes to the deserts and their longing for a soul. What matters is that you say yes to the voice inside the voice. Of the one you forgot. The one who dreamed and played and loved. And you bring forth what is in you to bring forth. And you break through your own walls and erase your own ceilings and stumble and fall, and get up again as you find your way home. And I would have to say that so many of us 
home is here. Or here. But how often do we go home? How often do we stay in this cognitive state with mental thoughts and forget that, I mentioned this before, that there's 11 inches between my head and my heart. And often it's the longest journey we'll ever take. Now, someone may be 12 inches, somebody may be 15, depending. But I invite you to take the journey. Forgetting the separation. We're not separate, this, this cheetah, this mind heart. It's all one. That's what matters. So it was really interesting yesterday that Tara um, was really talking about masks using James Baldwin's poem or statement. And what came to me last Thursday when I was arriving here, I was on an, you know, how many times are you on an airplane and you actually listen to what the attendant says? But the seatbelt's in here, you know, not very often. At least I don't. But something caught my eye, my ear, on the final leg of this journey here to Baltimore. And I heard the message that said, please place the mask over your own mouth and nose before assisting others. And I went, perfect. Because so often, and we can do this as activists and people in the world, we're extending our compassion We see the suffering in the world and we're trying to hold it in a particular way. And yet, we don't always meet our own suffering. We don't turn the mirror. We don't put the mask on first before helping others. It was perfect timing to hear that. So how do you meet the face of pain of others without facing the suffering that embodies your own being? Is it possible to do that? It's crazy, right? We oftentimes neglect and forget about ourselves in this process. The ground of compassion is established first by practicing sensitivity to ourselves. True compassion arises from a healthy sense of self, from an awareness of who we are that honors our true capacities and our fears our own feelings and integrity and well-being of every single creature. Such transformational opportunities, gifts that we can give ourselves, whether it's turning towards ourselves with metta and loving kindness, whether it's looking at ways in which we find balance in the world, looking at our mindful awareness, how are we walking in the world, or whether it's turning the mirror to our own self-compassion. Compassion for ourselves gives rise to the power to transform resentment and forgiveness. That sounds big. Hatred into friendliness. Fear into respect. It allows us to extend warmth and openness 
to the sorrow around us in much more of an authentic manner. It actually, for all of us, we can become spiritual warriors just by turning the mirror inward. We can take the we can take what um, Christine Feldman said, and that is, compassion asks us to take the seat in the pain and despair. We can become fearless spiritual warriors. We can lead a life that doesn't have the hook in it. We can be motivated to actually in suffering in our lives. In that dukkha, we can learn from it. We can transcend it. We can transform it. But first in ourselves. Looking at self-compassion. Looking at those phrases that oftentimes, if you're in a, in a Brahma-Vihara setting, and they'll say, do it for yourself first. Sometimes only the fire that we feel of our own individual suffering will bring us to a deeper understanding of what liberation really can be. I, about, as I said, 20 years ago, I stepped onto this path. But I didn't stay on the path because I had a guarantee of anything that I was going to guarantee of freedom, guarantee of liberation. I've stayed on the path because there is a possibility of it. Possibility to do this work. Extending out, it's like rays of light, extending from this source, resourced, renewed heart out. And when we turn the mirror inside, looking at this self-compassion, we have to also recognize our habit patterns. We, we all have this habituation in our lives. We turn it and then we turn it out. Because it's are we, ah, it's not comfortable. The chair doesn't feel good. I'll go the other way. Or somebody else is going to do that. They're going to go help the homeless. Or that wasn't really suffering I was feeling. It was, indi- it was indigestion. <laughs> we really have to take some time to look at the habit patterns, the habituations that we embody that color our lives, that leave these huge imprints that we just keep going back to. We can actually begin to break the cycle much like samsara, the cycle of endless suffering. At some point, we have to figure out where we can clip it and begin to find the the pathway to freedom and awakening. I realize that this idea of habits it really has been so much a part of my life. When I was 30, I got braces. For the period. I didn't do it when I was a child. So I got braces when I was 30. I had them on for about 
a year, 18 months or so. And so when the braces came off, my teeth really looked good, right? They looked really good. And so the dentist, the orthodontist, gave me uh, a retainer. I said, oh, retainer, I don't want to look like a kid. I don't want to wear the retainer. So I would wear it sometimes. I wouldn't. And then one day, I was sitting at work and, you know, not to, supposed to wear it when you eat. So I took it out at lunch, set it on my desk, forgot about it because I really didn't want it anyway. And when I got to work the next day, the cleaning people, I think, took it away. So I thought, oh, okay, retainer gone. So about two months later, I kept saying, huh, my teeth are starting to move. I go back to the orthodontist, and he said, what did you expect? It's a habit. Your, your teeth are going to go back to where they were. It felt good to them there. It's where it's been for 30 years. So I say that very quippy story to really speak to the retainer for me has been practice. It's been dedicating myself to this path of practice, dedicating myself to this, this way in which... Um, I've decided to live in this awakening, hopefully, awake state. So we talked about this fierce, tender heart of ours. Um, How do you take care of it? when everything is coming at us, when we really want to start looking at the wounds, our own wounds, our own suffering, the way we can heal. When my heart gets encrusted, hardened by what I see in the world or what I'm experiencing, you may not see this, but I have a shovel right here. It's a little pick, about this big. I take it out, And when I recognize that my heart is constricting, and I know we know what that feels like, when something just draws you and tightens up. And the interesting thing is that this heart muscle here is only the size of the fist. And it does so much for us. And yet we don't tend to it as ardently as we can. So when I feel my heart tight, sorrowful, unable to express itself. I take up my pick and I just start to chip away at it until it becomes malleable again and softened. Because that's what I was speaking of before, softening our hearts so that we can meet the suffering of ours and yours. And then I listen. I, I actually repeat the words Kuan Yin. That's become a way in which I can come back to that sense of open-heartedness. Pima Children says, instead of asking ourselves, how can I find security and happiness? We could ask ourselves, can I touch the center of my pain? Can I sit with suffering both yours and mine. 
without trying to make it go away? Can I stay present to the ache of loss and disgrace, disappointment in all of its form, and let it open me? I give you that invitation. Can I touch the center of my pain? Can I sit with suffering, both yours and mine, without trying to make it go away? This is the spiritual warrior. This is how we step into it. Tara said last night, what do we cry for? Who do we cry for? What remains? What's left? Our practice of self-compassion is a practice of survival. It allows us to actually soften ourselves. Walk a different path, maybe than others. And that's okay. Another teacher of mine... um, I've I've sat with and learned from Eugene Cash. He's out of San Francisco, inside and diamond heart teacher. He often says, let's get real together. That's his his saying. Okay, Sangha, let's get real together. And he says that when he's speaking to the depth of our practice. As we forge forward in the truth of the Dharma and make that forefront. And I'm going to invite us to do getting real together, but I'm also going to invite us to get free together. Please place the mask over your own mouth and nose before assisting others. This self-compassion, this movement towards your own freedom and liberation. This is the path a path, one of the paths, but truly an essential path to awakening. I'm going to end this evening with a, another poem. This is by June Jordan. We need each of us to begin the awesome, difficult work of love. Loving ourselves so that we become able to love other people without fear, so that we become powerful enough to enlarge the circle of our trust and our common striving for a safe, sunny afternoon near to flowering trees and under a very blue sky. This is from an essay called A Powerful Hatred in 1994. Awesome, difficult work of love, loving ourselves, turning the mirror so closely, almost magnifying to the suffering in our own, in our own selves, and also being able to hold the duality of our suffering and the suffering of the world. Family, thank you for your kind attention.